Let's get us started, and, and uh, again, welcome, and let me open in prayer this morning. Father God, we are uh, so blessed, and we're just reminded from your word and uh, Ephesians that uh, just points us directly to the blessedness of you and through Jesus Christ, that we truly, as your children, have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of Christ and in Christ. Father, reminded in Ephesians that you have chosen us for the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and without blame. Father, we um, are reminded that we're destined as the adoptions of sons through Christ. Father, with that, we praise you, that you would be glorified, that you, you are glorified by your grace that you've bestowed to us. Father, you have made us. And so I just thank you so much for... Uh, this great privilege that we've had to just savor your word over these weeks and months and daily that, Father, we can come to know you more. And even today as we discuss this process of sanctification, Father, that just literally conforms us more and more to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we just do pray for that ultimate sanctification, that moment of being with Christ and in your presence. So we just thank you for uh, our time. We pray your spirit will just lead and uh, just guide us, Father, that we would have understanding and comprehension to greater depth, to the significance of your word, and even as Peter has addressed again, uh, these believers that are seeking encouragement and comfort, and we know that we can find that through your word, and we give all thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, if you haven't turned, we're going to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, where we're at. And we have been spending uh, several weeks in 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10, and we've been focusing on these various spiritual privileges that we've identified. And within that passage, as we looked at it, and where we pick up is those the sections from the standpoint of identifying, starting in verse 4, and I'd like to go ahead and read that, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As we, by introductions, we talked last week that Peter is writing to these scattered Christians, and we know up to this point in just the background of this letter that they are experiencing 
circumstances that are very challenging. And they're, quote, paying the price. And we're going to link that paying the price to what Christ did. They're paying the price of living out their Christian lives in a hostile world. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10, that we have spent a great deal on, contains essentially the heart of this letter of encouragement that we find in Peter's first epistle. And it is a break point. It is a break point because as we conclude verse 10 today and we transition next week with Mark, is that we go to this aspect of living out and the practical aspect of that. I want you to note when you look at the verse, especially verses 4 to 9, that there's a flow of thought. And as we looked at even some of those highlighting things with respect to those spiritual privileges, but this flow of, of thought here is that Peter essentially is going back to this earlier theme of blessings on his people. In other words, I go back and I have to look at these verses, and I'm going right back to where we started in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundance mercy has begotten us again to a living hope for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it goes on. And so he is, again, this theme of blessing on his people, he's bringing them back. And it's sort of, I would say, like a parting, a last comment he's going to get in. A remember. And what is a, a trigger point for me is this but. Right? The but. The but you are in verse 9. Okay? And we all know that when you see the but in Scripture, it always presents what? When you see a, the but, and I'll give you the, one of the buts that you're all familiar with, is you're familiar with when, in Ephesians 2, right? But God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we are dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What's the significance of the but? What it does is it takes the sections in there, and it is. It is bringing it in this comparison. So you always look before this at the verses. And so therefore, what immediately precedes this is what Peter is talking about with these disobedient, the unbelievers. Do you see that in the verses? Because it talks in verses 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of fence, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. So it is this, again, this contrast of these. And so this section picks up on the thought, essentially, even going back to verse 7. So it, it, it goes back around because it said in verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. So it picks it up, but it ties back to the but you are the opposite of what's in verse 8, which is those who are disobedient. What follows then, and so I pick up today and where we started last week, is it follows with these four titles of honor that are basically are rooted in the background of Old Testament scripture. And so they are used specifically. And I, there are two main verses. In fact, when you look at this, all, all four of these I highlighted and read there in the chart, the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, God's own possession, they are specifically, all four of them, come from either uh, Exodus 19.6 or from Isaiah 43.20 and 21. Now, each of these, uh, and I'm, we're calling them titles of honor, They're titles of honor because they have 
there's a significance to them, and, and this is the way I'm going to describe this. Each of these contain a noun and then a modifier. Okay? Now, it's, for example, it says that you are, and then it describes these titles of honor that are bestowed to these readers. And essentially, as New Testament believers, it, it is these titles of honor to you. Now, here's other examples of when I say it's like a noun and a modifier. It would be like that you are dead to sin. You are alive to righteousness. You are a new creation. You are the heir of eternal life. Does that, that make sense? And so this is this noun. And so when you look at this, apply it the same way to these royal terms. Now, here in this description of the church, essentially these descriptions are followed by the purpose. And the purpose is what we see specifically that follows in there. And that is in the following verses after that. Now, last week we covered the privileged honor of being chosen by God to salvation. And we focused on the honor and the privilege of being united with Christ in this royal priesthood. And as a priesthood, we've, we've, we serve and we reign with Him. And so, the third title of honor that's listed in verse 9 is this nation, that we are a holy nation. And so this points to our separation as our next privileged, uh, spiritual privilege to focus on is that it is our separation to Christ. Now, we have stated before that these quotes that Peter, and this is part of this profound part of it for me, is that, again, he makes these quotations and alludes, allusions specifically to Old Testament uh, throughout these verses of 4 to 10. And now he is describing specifically the church as a holy nation because he is talking to them. He says, but you are. Specifically, he says that, he says that you are, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and then specifically a holy nation. Now, when it, when it talks about this word of nation, it's specifically within the Greek, it means this word ethnic, or in this case, people. And so it is a people that are set apart as a, to holiness. We talked earlier about this aspect of this message of holiness, who's describing specifically the church, and is drawing on God's description of Israel. And it's saying that God has a new people, the church, consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. Of both Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember you that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh of hands, that at, the, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But, here's another but, in contrast again, but now in Christ Jesus, you were once were far off, but have been brought near to the blood of Christ. There's, the, again, the contrast. And that is significant, again, because as we're talking about this separation to Christ itself, it's going to, we're going to talk about a little bit more depth. Now, within Old Testament is that 
there's other references to this. I, I used Exodus uh, 19.6. If you want a couple of others to look at, Leviticus 19.2. Uh, 20, Leviticus 20.26 is a really rock-solid one. Again, that, again, s- similar descriptions that we see in the Old Testament where specifically God's people are referenced as this holy nation. Deuteronomy 7.6, Isaiah 62.12. Or other examples, and as I said last week, is that we, as we look back at those Old Testament um, promises and descriptions specifically of Israel, unfortunately, we know what we read on after that is that it's the tragedy of Israel's failure and this unbelief of them as a, a nation as a whole, and this forfeiting of this great privilege that belonged they as as this chosen generation, they forfeited that unique relationship. And I just want a, a grasping point, we'll call it. i got to think of something to handle. A grasping point is this. Israel was in this privileged place of election, chosen, holiness, and they forfeited the privilege. This is... The, the, the significance of what Peter is trying to remind them, and for you and I, Mick, your point was well, is that what do you have in Christ, really? Holiness means that we are set apart unto God. And that includes being set apart for two things, service, but primarily for a relationship with Him. And as we know, in, in salvation, God does this inconceivable act where he draws a wicked, vile sinner. One of the questions talked about darkness and light. Taking that sinner from the state of darkness into light. It's the, it's the passage in Colossians 1.13 that really describes this being taken out of the kingdom of Satan and being placed in the kingdom of his son. Now, the theological word that often is used to describe the reality of that being set apart is sanctification. It's being set apart from that. Now, I want to take you back and we're going to bridge this because when you look at 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1 verses 1 and 2 again, and I'll read verse 2, it says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and what is it? In sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood. So in other words, what we see in that is that you, are, as a chosen according to foreknowledge, is this salvation itself is the work of God. Salvation is the work of God by which we are set apart. Now, I've got some verses that I'd like to kind of look at. That's Acts 15, verses 7 to 9. If someone wants to help Verses that I'd like to look at from on that is Acts 15, Hebrews. In the source, so if someone would be willing to read Acts 15, and then someone read Hebrews 10:10, 10, 10, and then Hebrews 10:14 to 15 to kind of get you going. Thank you. God knows the heart. See, this, this this is this picture of what it means to be sanctified. It says to be holy. There's this cleansing of sin, set apart from sin, set apart unto God. Okay, And what we're going to do is we're going to try to unpack this word of sanctification a little further because to say that they are uh, uh, essentially, it's, we look at it being 
connected in a way to the salvation itself. We're accustomed to that explaining sanctification as this progressive sanctification, which is totally accurate. But we're going to talk a little bit more how they are linked to this positional type of sanctification. Hebrews 10.10. Someone. Thank you. Okay, and then how about Hebrews 10.14-15. Okay, in those two Hebrews passages, do you see that sanctification is it's like goes hand in hand with salvation there and uh, the Hebrews 10 14 and 15 that literally the sanctification is sort of bound up in, in salvation itself and you become part of the holy nation by the work of the spirit the spirit's work of salvation in you and so as we look at this process of, of holiness and sanctification it is both determined termed as both positional and progressive so let's define those terms or what it means. But that's just looking specifically at what we be able to connect with these passages that we say that there's a hand-in-hand with uh, sanctification and salvation. It, so sanctification is just, it's not just the state of being. And it's, it's a, really, it's this progressive pattern of our lives completely. And when the Holy Spirit sets you apart unto God, you have become, at that very moment this progressive aspect of your life of the sanctification. And so when we talk about positional, that you're no longer in bondage to sin. The devil and the death, and these some passages like Romans 6, 6 is one that we'll, can point to more or less. The specifically is our old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And so therefore... Again, this is a, an example of a positional type of sanctification. That because you are no longer controlled in, to the bondage to sin, you, we start living that way, knowing that we're not bound to it. The progressive aspect of it is that a change occurs in our pattern of life through the power of the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is just one example. It just says, this is the will of God. Your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay? This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So, as we are, as believers, we are set apart unto Him, and at salvation, we're given this privilege of being set apart unto God to be His, obviously, to be His possession. And that practically, what that, how that lives out is this positional aspect of it, but also this progressive, this pattern of life. And I, I had a question to ask you. This is something I... Here, here's uh, two things that came to mind in this. First of all, I, I'm reminded of where Jesus kept poking at the fact that what some of the Pharisees believed was truly... Uh, being set apart unto God, Jesus called it out as being you whitewashed tomb. What did he mean by that? Paul. That's what uh, sanctification does not look like. <laughs> you know, I, I was painting uh, earlier this summer, I, was, I had some painting a door on the side garage door and had, was painting it white and it was rotted out. So if I paint over it, it looks great. But Inside it is rot, just rotted out. And this is this aspect of what, uh, that's not, 
sanctification practically is not that way. And so therefore, what we're getting at here is that practical sanctification involves, like what you were saying, it's got to be an internal. I've got to replace the, the wood. Okay? And we are set apart unto Christ both positionally, right? Both positionally as well as personally. And so therefore, this aspect of intimacy. Now here's a, something I don't know if you thought about. Are we then in this progressive sanctification every day? Is that we are striving towards something that we already have? Thoughts on that? Yeah, because he remember he reckoned back in chapter one. I mean, this is what he said. He says, uh, "As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as your in your as in your ignorance, but he who called you is holy, so you also be called holy." It, it is. It's actually that's the case. You're, you're, it's both positionally, and we are really striving towards living in the light of our identity, and that's the disaster of sin. A sin is constantly challenging that. All the time, every day, that it is essentially sin is contrary to this union that we have in Christ. And so, Mick, you're right. What happens is, is then it, it just it keeps breaking it down, and there is not that true appreciation for that. John. It's all about cultivating that in itself. It's cultivating that personal intimacy with God. Yeah. And that that was the question that, in your notes there, you know, uh, in your opening questions, you know, can holiness be achieved apart from, from Christ? No. But the thing is, is that in our flesh, at least as you said that, we're going to try at times to see if we can uh, find a way to improve upon that. You know, give me the latest, greatest uh, psychology method that might be able to help me get there. And it's, it's actually, it's not, that's the opposite of this case. It's just saying it is only found in Christ. And that in itself is this, what we are challenged constantly with. And so uh, it begins to manifest itself more and more and more in our lives. So there is a, a third place on this. In other words, positionally, yes. Progressively, throughout our life, to ultimately being sanctified when we are with Christ. You are complete. Mm-hmm. I so appreciate that because let's just, uh, that is the response that Peter, I'm going to just make a guess, that he is, is praying and hoping from, from, from these believers 
that it is at that level of awareness, it's because then. Because then what follows, starting in verse 11, is all of the practical aspects of life then. And so that, you've described it well, all of you, because it's starting to hit home. <laughs> they get it. And that's exactly this expression of that. And he is, I believe, I like this, this last little bit of encouragement because he's taking them, these, these believers, these old, you know, many of them Jews and Gentiles, but he's taking them to a place of Old Testament that they would know exactly what that means. He is the one. He is the one that got encouraging others for spiritual privilege. This last uh, honor statement is possession. In the possession by Christ, where it says, You are, you are a people for God's own possession, in in verse 9. And this reflects Exodus 19.5. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession among all the peoples. Peter might have been even thinking about Isaiah 43, where it says, The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. Now, this word possession, it means to acquire for price, which speaks of the redemption of God's own possession. To acquire, to purchase, to acquire for a price. You find it in Ephesians 1.14, which speaks specifically about the redemption of of God's own possession. We, it says, we are God's own possession because He paid the price, Ephesians 1.14. Acts 20.28, 20, it says that we are God's own possession because He paid the price. It says the church was purchased with Christ's own blood. And one of my favorites that is there, I'll just read it to you, but if there's a verse in there you want to look up, it's Titus 2.14. It says, Christ gave himself for us that we might redeem excuse me that he he might redeem us for every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession there it is it is the possession of Christ god has sovereignly elected you and i by the sacrifice of christ and paid the price to get us back through him therefore we're god's own personal possession I, I, this uh this week, I came across something very profound, and I just want to read it to you. I love Oswald Chambers. Um, just can keep reading them and reading them, and every time I keep reading them, there's something new that comes up. But uh, as it relates to specifically about possessions, I want, he took us in, this, in the writing that he did, is he talked about the, where Jesus confronted the rich man. And I wanted to just read a couple of sections of that because I think it's very profound. The verses, and now I says, I now rejoice. Oops, wrong verse here. It says, then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. This is the rich young ruler. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me but he was sad at his that this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions and this is what chambers comment which i think just fits in perfectly what we're talking about here the rich young ruler had a controlling passion to be perfect when he saw jesus christ he wanted to be like him 
Our Lord never places anyone's personal holiness above everything else when he calls a disciple. His primary consideration is my absolute annihilation of my right to myself and my identification with him, which means having a relationship with him which there is no other relationships. goes on. Because Jesus says to go. To go, in that, in that verse, he says, one thing you lack, go your way. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This look, this is the part, this look of Jesus will require breaking your heart away forever from allegiance to any other person or thing. Has Jesus ever looked this way at you? It's the look that Jesus has that transforms it penetrates and it captivates. When we are soft and pliable with God is where the Lord has looked at you. And if you are hard and vindictive, insistent on having your own way, and always certain that the other person is more likely to be in the wrong than you are, then there are whole areas of, of your nature that have never been transformed by His gaze. I love that. In this aspect of possession, this is this very... This point here is that in Acts 1, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to, to shepherd the church which He has purchased with His own blood. We were purchased. We were redeemed by God with a price. And therefore, as believers, we belong to Him. So, what does He not own about you? Does He own your time? Does He own your body? Does He own your emotions? Does he own your resources? In fact, I've been reminded lately that this body, if he chooses to debilitate it in some way, it's because he has that right to do that. He is Lord of our lives, even unto death. I, I like the passage in Romans. Um, Romans chapter, I'll just read it. Romans chapter 14, verse 8. You're familiar with this passage. It says, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. Romans 14, 8. Take comfort in that. There is no, absolutely no room for anything on our bragging part of our lives. Nothing. Not your gifts, not your abilities. There's no room for any of that. This is this privilege that we have in this possession by Christ. (coughs) Moving on. Our illumination. Our illumination in Christ. It says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. I'm skipping over this proclaiming aspect. We'll come back to that. Because I believe that's the, the, what the whole purpose of it is. What we're supposed to do. But let's focus on this aspect of this, uh, this proclaiming excellencies where he has called us out of darkness into. Now this darkness that has been called out, what is it referencing? Sin. Right. He's referencing sin. The darkness we've been called out is this dreadful state of sin. Support, a couple of supporting passages there in John and in Ephesians. It consists primarily of two things, ignorance and immorality. Now, Peter is affirming that 
these you they as believers and you and I that we have been called out of darkness. And this this word that we see often in Scripture, where it's translated "called," it always refer, um, is referred to this this initiative that God takes. It's not like it's an invitation. It's the effectual call of God that always, always ends in salvation. So Christ has been called, has called believers out of an effectual call to salvation. Back in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 15, he stated this again. But you were called, but he has called you his holy. Uh, he's called you his holy, and he also is holy because of your conduct. But as he is holy, he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Now we understand and discern truth, and He changes our souls so we can obey. The privilege that we have by being called out of darkness into light is that at a point we were totally intellectually and morally dark. But now, because of salvation, this illumination through Christ is that we have the ability to understand and to understand truth, but also to do what's right. Uh, That's the conviction of the Spirit that we just heard about, talked about. Now, God, only God, God has the power to separate light from darkness. Like, Like you go back to Genesis 1, what happened? God just said, let there be light. Only God has the power to separate the light from the darkness. And so therefore, that is essentially what He did in your life. It's the picture of it is back in Genesis. Now, what are the implications of that for you? A thought. What is the implication of that? That only God has the power to turn on the light. The, the, the implications of that are like, in other words, what does that mean to me or what is the a response to that? Two things come to mind. One is that as we think about this going backwards, and like he's saying, is that first of all, this is the work of the sovereign God. In other words, the light came on for you God turned on the light for you at the appointed time. It is the sovereign work of God. And so therefore, praise Him for that. <laughs> praise Him for that. The Secondly, the aspect of it is, is that now that the light is turned on, you can see. And so therefore, you no longer walk in the darkness. I hope that you have a nightlight. But we do, but sometimes the nightlight's not always on. So when you have to get up in the middle of the night, uh, you can stub your toe, which, or you can miss the door, or you're out there with your hands trying to feel, right? And those are the things that occur. The point is, is that you walk in the light, in a confidence, an aspect of that. And this is this other implication of this, is that if we have been illuminated in Christ, is that now we can see, therefore, our conduct, our walk should respond. That should be the response of that. Ephesians 5, 8 to 11 is a great reference verse. If you want to look it up, I'll read it to you. It says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Ephesians 5, verses 8 to 11. Colossians 1:13 is another one that says, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. When... Uh, there, there's a part of this that I wanted to just comment on, and this is this. I read it again. And if someone, I have the, uh, I have a New King James, 
it says that we are called you out of darkness into what? Mine says into his marvelous light. Anybody ever have a description of that light differently? I just want to stop for a second. That's an important word. What does that word mean to you? Once again, it's this noun and modifier, isn't it? It describes it. It's an interesting word group there. That it is a marvelous light. Rephrase it. Give me another... uh, Check your, give me your, if you're the thesaurus, so give me a different word than marvel. Wonderful. Awesome. Spectacular. Keep going. You're amazed. You're astonished. Yes, it, it is, it's a description of this light. And, and I just don't, don't glance too quickly over that because when you look at this, it is not just a light. It is a marvelous, it's an astonishing, an amazed, a wonderful light. Do you know what they had a tree in front of it, it, What it did is, it, 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 it's, it's it was a, how you describe it, it was a different type of light. I mean, it had to be a certain light. I mean, yesterday was a nice day, blue sky. Mm. And being oh, you see this light, it is a light that seems like it's set up. I have a uh, old dear friend that uh, he uh, lives, uh, lives up in the, now he currently lives up in the UP. He lives right on Lake Superior. And uh, we were out, this was years ago, we were out on, he lives beach, beachside, we were on the beach. And you can imagine <laughs> what we saw over Lake Superior. And it was pitch black, no, no suburban streetlights around. And so it was just the light of the sky, and we saw the most spectacular, marvelous northern lights. And that's the image that I have. It is forever etched in my my head. Draw a connection between that, again, to this marvelous light, this illumination that I believe that you have to understand this aspect of the temple. In this Old Testament, it's the glory of God that is almost this reference, isn't it? That we see it, it's this picture, because isn't that how God manifested himself? And the, the purpose was within the temple itself, right? And so now Peter is saying, this applies to you. You're the church. You are the temple of God. So therefore, he is saying is that, going back out, is that you have been called out of darkness now into this glorified light, this magnificent light. Can Please. We, can we brought this to our attention, but Mark really defined God. Celestic, splendor, odd-dropping beauty, which outshining of the aggregated attributes, God's infinite care, explosive, brilliant, incandescent, lightning, white, hot light. We talked about that light. That's where my brain was also see the gravity of ourselves even more. That every day that God brings. Kim, this is no, no, it's marvelous. <laughs> and we are so, so, we are times different in some way. Um, to have a knowledge of God, marvelous. Quote. <laughs> we were just talking here. Mm. Just going to, whoops, go back. You just need to get this up here to kind of get us through the last couple of thoughts here. Uh, take the, t- the verses that I'm going to have. The verses that are on there. Just, I'd like you to just to take the time to do that. But it, I, I didn't want to go quickly through this last little piece here. But it, it's interesting is that when he Peter continues on and when he says that that you uh, in verse 10, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, 
who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. It is very interesting is, is that the book of Hosea, he, he is taking this reference to this to Hosea chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, where it says that you are not my people. It will, so in the book of Hosea, it talks about, it, it, Hosea tells us in this writing, it said that this, uh, about this adulterous wife, he gave birth to a daughter. The daughter said to him, the, excuse me, the Lord said to him, and he specifically gave the names of these children. The first name of the child is that I, I will no longer have compassion. In other words, it, it was... For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I should ever forgive them, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle. When, when she had weaned, the name of the Eloarumah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Loamini, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. He applies this Old Testament description again of Israel to the New Testament church. Now, that is being somewhat negative, but yet Paul used the same reference in Romans 9. He actually, in Romans 9, 25, 26, I will call those who are not my people. He is specifically referring to the New Testament church. So in other words, he's referring to the, to the church itself, you and I, as those who were once not a people, but now are a people of God. Isn't that true? That's exactly what the reference here is. So therefore, this is particularly true of the church, specifically to who are Gentiles, and that would be you and I. God's mercy is compassion on His people. Mercy is synonymous with compassion. essentially involves God's sympathy with sinners and His withholding them from just punishment. And... Time escapes me, but there's really different types of mercy. There's just really a general mercy that applies to the fact that believers and unbelievers are living, right? Then there is this special mercy that applies to you and I as believers. These verses are just great support verses that really speak to the loving kindness of God. It speaks that the Lord is good. Uh, who is God and who can pardon iniquity and pass over rebellious acts of remnants of you know Romans nine God says I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. There are just great verses to go through and take some time yourself to finish that those thoughts off. But in, in finishing up here is this ask, this this proclamation. I'm just going to. This is where this final herald comes. We're going to go back up to. It says that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. The privilege, we're going to go back to this last privilege. So we covered 10, we're going to go back to 9, conceptually because it is last, because it explains literally the entire purpose for the privileges that we have in Christ. And that is that you would be a proclaimer of that. In other words, it's to proclaim the excellencies of God. And these excellencies are not just the deeds of God. It is these heroic types of emphasis that we see. And this aspect of proclaiming is that in itself, is that we can enjoy these high privileges that we have when we become ambassadors for Christ. The extraordinary work of redemption that we're describing, again, this ability for God to do mighty and powerful acts. Everything that God does is designed to bring Him praise. And just a close on this, that 
Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so therefore, as sinners saved by grace, and what we deserve, yet because of Christ, we've been granted these marvelous, incredible, taking all the words off of that sheet, spiritual privileges. And so therefore we should be eternally grateful. Peter has laid the foundation of understanding up to these, all these verses up to this point. And they, essentially how we transition in this is that up to this point, and where the passage will now, it spells out all these privileges and responsibilities we have in our identity with Christ. And now we'll transition next week as Mark begins with this, then what? How does it look? The practical aspect that we have as believers. We are identified with Christ. And this teaching that we've been having going through each of these verses now will be applied to our lives in our conduct. It is the basis of our conduct. We, we know in Ephesians 4.1. Let me finish close with that verse. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, and endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This was, um, I kind of rushed through this last portion of this, but uh, look forward to this, and look at it as we begin next week, to the aspect of this transition to the foundation of our identity in Christ, now to the living out of that in this practical sanctification in our conduct. Mark, you want to close us in prayer? Thank you. Father, I just ask all of us to be stuck to... Amen. Thank you.